How's it, everyone? And welcome to South Africa's smoothest glass of Amarula podcast. Uh, or at least that's what we're trying yeah. to do. Yeah. Two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer. And we're joined today by the other half of your host. Yeah, it's Gabriel Krauser hanging out in a thorn tree, drinking whiskey, not Amarula. But it's a Saturday, and that makes yeah, me I've, happy. It's raining I finished outside. the Amarula last night. It's delightful. Oh, are you dry this weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, now I'm without. Now I'm without. But um, so this podcast has a long-running uh, drinking game, which is that every time I mention Kwame Anthony Appiah, you're supposed to have a drink. <laughs> and Nicholas is basically telling me, I think this is. I think he's pretending to not have a drinking weekend, and really, what he's saying is he doesn't want me talking about Kwame Anthony Appiah. <laughs> Praise be upon Appiah's, Ap- Appiah's name. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think uh, I, I, I certainly was a little bit um, unsure about what to talk about this week. Um, uh, you had more ideas. So we'll start uh, with you. And, well, so what was the important thing that happened this week? I think it was a pretty boring week, except for, of course, we had a Friday uh, bit of excitement. Um, it was a little bit like a repeat of the last uh, bit of excitement we had from our friends in the red, the EFF who decided to uh, harass a high school and um, have a fight with the police and uh, beat up some people. So, yeah, Gabriel, you looked into the story, <laughs> but what exactly happened? Okay, so what happened in Brackenfall is, as far as I can tell, that because the school cancelled his matric dance, uh, one parent in particular wanted to give her daughter the sort of uh, memory of a lifetime of having a matric dance. And that sounds kind of trite, but you know what? I remember my matric dance. It was awful. Uh, my <laughs> date, who I kept wanting to say, can we be – I was that guy. I was like, can't we be boyfriend or girlfriend? I'm so in love with you. Let's make it official. And she was like, no, because it will hurt my ex-boyfriend's feelings. Or no, because it'll hurt this other guy's got a big crush on me's feelings. Ooh. And it took me a while to realize that meant no, because I'm hooking up with other dudes. <laughs> and I realized oh. it on our matric dance night where she decided not to come to the after party uh, because she was going to hook up with another guy who she was with when I went to pick her up for the before party with my mom. She was with another guy. Uh, who has now become <laughs> one of the country's like best stage actors of our generation and is very smooth and Belgian. And wait, 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 other than that, what is there to say? <laughs> you had your date stolen by a Belgian. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing right now because it still, it still brings up a sense of shame. Um, <laughs> Of course, my apologies to any Belgian listeners we might have, although I don't think we do actually have any. Uh, we have from a lot of countries around the world, but I'm not sure if Belgium is one of them. We're not sure. I mean, our other running joke is that, is South Africa really a country? And it kind of comes from the meme of, is does Belgium really exist? Yes, there's a conspiracy uh, theory that Belgium is a is a giant conspiracy meant to prove that the EU is good or something. I, I can't remember exactly what the particulars of it are, but that anyone who crosses the border into Belgium is actually gassed and put into a chamber that gives them a hallucination about visiting this little country. 
Yes. No, it's not a bad idea. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea, but it's kind of fun. Anyway, uh, the point is that I get it. You know, pe most people who've been to a metric dance remember it forever. When I was in Newcastle uh, covering the Rafferty murder case, I was there with Sihle and Gobesi and Bali and uh, Amy Clare. And we were having dinner at a spur and we ended up talking about our matric dancers because it is just, you know, we, we all come, all four of us come from different worlds to the other three. So sorry, just and to we all have that in common. Uh, we've had 20 downloads from Belgium over the course of our entire podcast. Okay, so we love Belgium. Belgium loves us. <laughs> well, <Cheers>. you know, <laughs> it's um, out of all the countries in the world, it's the 17th in terms of... Uh, places that download we have more listeners in taiwan than we do in belgium awesome awesome we also love taiwan i mean we really do love taiwan we really do and love taiwan unlike with you guys with you guys <laughs> we're thinking about you we're following you in the news uh fly the flag of freedom okay so so i'm trying to talk about brackenfall here nick yes <laughs> I, I i love that you're plugging how international the listenership of two crickets and a thorn tree is but but there's an important South African story to cover, and it's and it's Brackenfell, and some parent wanted to give her daughter the matric dance of uh, of a lifetime, and the venue that they hired usually covers 250 people, which is about the size of the matric class, 252, but because of COVID-19 restrictions, they could only admit 100, which is part of the reason that the costs for attendance were 500 rand. But if you think about going to an event where there's going to be food. On the table and live performance and whatever, 500 Rand is not that far out of what you might expect to have to pay. Right. And some people kids dump ridiculous pay. amounts of money on their metric dances. So that's not really uh, yeah. out of no, bounds. No, it's definitely, yeah. it's not out of bounds. And then if you think of all the things you have to pay on top of that in terms of uh, what you're going to dress up in and the transport, if you want to go. I mean, my favorite metric dance, I, I went to metric dance at Afis Wur. Uh, a lovely young lady invited to be her date. And uh, Afis Hoer, I mean, I've just got to digress to the Afis Hoer <laughs> because it was a cultural experience of note. Uh, it was hosted at the Fuer Tracker Monument. Oh, boy. Monument built on the hill above Pretoria in commemoration of the Battle of Blood River which is really the kind of thing you want to have on your mind when you're going to matric dance. Yes. Sort of <laughs> war, war and romance go so, so hand in hand. I must say it was the perfect setting. And the thing about the Fort Tracker Monument is that it's accessible right off the highway uh, going into Pretoria, but there's a sort of kilometer or two long road sort of crawling through wilderness where they've, which they've populated with the odd gazelle and zebra and so on. Up to the up to the monument on the top of the hill, and so people will arrive. Some of them in their transport, you know, you just catch an Uber or whatever. There was no Uber at the time, but you you catch a taxi or, or your parent gives you a lift, or if you can drive a car, you probably don't drive a car because you want to get drunk when you get there. But in any right, event, yeah. you have your photographs taken in your suit and tie, with your beautiful date and and her bouquet, and then you you get in whatever vehicle is taking you there, and then at the Fort Tracker Monument, sort of events venue uh hall which is separate to the monument itself there's kind of a a huge awning like a two-story high awning that goes across the road that gives shelter from whatever elemental conditions might be disrupting people's hairdos and you get out of there and there's a sort of 
press corps of photographers that flash lights in your <laughs> eyes before the moment. Okay, so that's the way you might do it. But then, of course, you might sort of rent out a fancy vehicle. When I was at Stillians, like Nick, you know, we had guys arriving in limos and Lamborghinis uh, in, in, in the year below yeah, me, and, some and guys arriving in helicopters. Course. Yeah, truly a lot of new money. Yeah, some of that enough is not much, but some limos. But a big thing to do there is to rent an ox wagon to be pulled by horses. Or no, car to be pulled by horse. That I can get behind. So you park it at the bottom there by the highway, and then you get into that dingus, and it pulls you up for a kilometer or two uphill, and you sit there <laughs> snapping pictures of each other and having a nip from the old hip flask uh, to get nicely prepared for the, the awning arrival, and you can step down from your mighty horse-drawn carriage with your, with your beautiful dates. And everyone will snap a picture. And it's a great blend of the old world and the new. And this is very exciting to see. And the other very exciting thing was that uh, I knew at this metric dance there would be a lot of lang aram, soki dance. And uh, <laughs> so I had to have a lot of training and preparation for that. And uh, I was very glad to see that I could learn it. It's pretty intuitive. Uh, but yes, like I was worried about the, you know, I'm six foot three, six foot three and a bit. And my date, so I was naturally sort of fit under my chin and it was very good for the Soki. But she had to practice with her cousin who was about five foot ten, which is a very normal height. But when you're Sokiing with a girl who's six foot tall, then uh, you're definitely looking up to her, which just, which isn't, I'm not sure. which isn't correct. This, this, yeah, this feels, I'm not sure whether this feels like a humble brag or a very niche podcast called The Problems of Tall People. <laughs> the Problems of Tall People. <laughs> Dude, so the thing is that I'd been to the previous, uh, the Uffies, they have like a matric dance, formal dance, and then earlier in the year, they have like a matric soiree. And I'd been to that, so I'd met all of her friends. And all of these Afrikaans girls were like five foot 11 at the shortest, ranging between five foot 11 and six foot one. You know, they were very close to my height. They were all taller than you. And so I wondered if a regular heighted <laughs> chap like yourself had been invited, how he was going to get away on the soki floor. And and this was coming all from a place of insecurity because I knew I would not be the best sockiest there or even close. I'd probably be the worst because I was the least experienced. <laughs> yes. so I was wondering how they managed. I realized because I was so attentive to this very quickly that I was about the third shortest person in the room. And Afis Macy's word has about 200 <laughs> matric girls. You invited 200 boys or men <laughs> to be their dates. And I swear to you, I didn't see anyone shorter than six foot one. And I really only saw That's three or four guys that were shorter than six foot three. The entire Blue Bulls under 21 team was there. The entire Blue Bulls under 18 <laughs> team was there. A third of the Lions under 21 team was there. And the only reason more of them weren't invited was so really, because they were worried about starting a small war. <laughs> You were with the future of South African rugby, is what you're telling me. Oh, I really was, dude. And they were. It was, it was amazing feeling. It's the only time in my life, outside of hanging out with like the Princeton uh, basketball team, where like you stand, you stand in the queue to at the bar, and and you just feel very very short. <laughs> yeah, my 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 father tells me stories from South Sudan, where of course they are also extremely tall, despite being fairly malnourished. Um, one one shudders to think that if the people of South Sudan ever gain access to, uh, you know, excellent nutrition, McDonald's. then the world is 
then the world is kind of doomed because they will <laughs> dominate it. Um, but every uh, height-based sport. He, yeah, he he describes. I think there's a few South Sudanese refugees in in America, and they already are massively overrepresented in basketball, for example. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, he anyway. So matric dancers can be weird. To, having Sorry, having to that. yeah jog alongside these guys to keep up with them because their strides were so long. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like sprinting, and they're sort of having a, a gallant stroll. So exactly. these are the kinds of things that you learn from going to matric dances. And I've, I've got all right. kinds of friends who've been to all kinds of matric dances. And they've yeah, always been no interesting cultural experiences. Because in South Africa, it. we don't have much culture. You right. know, we don't... And, and it's, it's, it's no surprise that people want to hold this because, you know, it is such a sort of feature of so many people's lives. But can I just say before we go further with the story that there is a long history. And I've heard this many times, completely separate from this particular context, that private matric dances cause drama. Lots of drama. Doesn't yeah. matter what the what the what, who organizes it, where it is, or anything. Whenever there's a private matric dance, it always causes some drama. And, and this was no exception. So here we have a private matric dance, and only fifty of the students, or slightly less, forty-two, I think, um, pay the five hundred rand and go. And some of the students who are black say we had better things to do. They didn't want to be part of it. So it's an in crowd out kind of thing what, for all that yeah, money yeah, yeah. like can you be in a coolest some of it is uh black students on record saying we couldn't afford to go right most certainly there are black students on record saying we were invited and we declined for and i've just given two the two main reasons yeah and colored students also on record saying we were invited and we declined to go okay there right. was definitely definitely as far as we can tell only white people of the 42 of the 250 students in matric only 42 went and all of those were white yeah so a parent as it turns out the first whistleblower was a parent whose name is i think ivan millish he's a colored man in real estate you can look up his linkedin profile which is what i did and no other journalist seems to have done and you see (laughs) that he advertises his real estate company or enterprise as being africa oriented african oriented so he's clearly trying to plug a line. Anyway, he's the first guy who posts on Facebook this terrible white whites only matric dances happen. They excluded students on the basis of race. Right. And the EFF sees this and they reach out and they get complaints from one or two students who say, Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, we 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 couldn't go because we we're black. And I think that there's a sensitive little point here, which is that which no one wants to get into, which is that not everyone was invited. They created a WhatsApp group and they said, you know, spread it around to all of the matrix who you think might be interested. And so some black matrix got it and then asked their friends, and this is on the record, read Tigerberg uh, newspaper. It's a local newspaper based around um, Brackenfell. Uh, they said, we asked our friends and they, and they weren't interested because they had better things to do. So, I don't think it's the case that everyone on the matric so wait a second. in the matric are you, group are you was telling on the me, list. Are you telling me that some people were not invited to a high school party? That's what I'm saying. That's definitely <laughs> words coming out of my mouth and they're wow. two words. That's never happened before. No. It's a first and it's big news. <laughs> it's it's gonna be covered by the New York Times, just you wait. Anyway, yeah. so the, the problem is that 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 once the thing has happened and you weren't officially on the WhatsApp group list, you can then say I wasn't invited 
and then say that's because I was black, right. even though other black guys were invited and no one's going to do the fact checking that's in the EFF. So you can go and have a protest. And as soon as they go to have a protest, because this has come out of COVID, I mean, after COVID, it sort of shut everyone down. So all the old stories could start again and everyone competes for attention. Yes. And so go, go back to normal, had, which is having a racial incident every week. Yeah. So the media circus was going to um, farm murder sites which I think are nice sites for the EFF to go to because, as I said, outside the Newcastle Magistrates Court, Lucky Shabalala was chanting down with the, down with the Afrikaans farmer, down with the Boer. Um, and I asked him, why are you here? He said, I'm here in solidarity with Sia Bongamatko, a confessed farm killer. So it's nice because they can advertise them as radicals, but it's a little bit awkward because they don't have any kind of moral high ground, you know, I think really advertises a bad look. Whereas with this kind of uh, party, because it's so inconsequential, it's also easier to make it about the generalities and the oppression of apartheid and sort of look away from the causes right. belly. It's a story and that, that and that's right every 15 minutes in South Africa. So that's, so, 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 so that's what happened. And since then I had a great panel discussion for two hours on Vim TV. If you listen to this podcast, you might want to check out that episode. It's the Brackenfell episode on Vim TV. Once, a week they have a two-hour thing and they have some music yeah, i think and it I think goes on live radio uh remind everyone in the uh in the after in the, in the recommendation section i think of that one i will okay just just to flag what is great about it is that the, the eff i think head of the western cape uh the one of the top guys at the human rights commission top dudes from satu which is the teachers union sacco which is the student uh leadership thing uh they were all there as well as Courtney Mulder, who's the head of the Phrase Front Plus. And right. it it was like pretty civilized and pretty interesting. And eventually it became a, a bit of a bloodbath with everyone teaming up on me, which is great. Um, <laughs> and and kind of interesting. And I think, yeah, I think I made some good points. And um, I think that it was a very interesting debate. Also an ANC Youth League guy was there. Anyways. Yes. And then since then I've been on like, I think almost all of the major news broadcasters giving interviews about this stuff. So this is kind of why it's on the front of my mind. Um, what is there to make of it? I mean, there's the usual talking points like, you know, Institute of Race Relations Survey show most South Africans are very keen on working together, are not into this kind of uh, radical, revanchist way of thinking about things like black versus white, let's go to war. Most right, people really right. don't want that. And, uh, and and it's important to remember that, like, when you see one incident, part of the reason it sticks out is because it's unusual. Uh, some of the news uh, people that I've been speaking to have been very keen to draw attention to Eldorado Park, where there was a stabbing between across race, which was explicitly over a fight about race, uh, black and white. Um, also very unusual, uh, but very important to look at those things, but to look at those things within this context of, like, you know, this is not how we want to things to be and 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 the other way of looking at things which is how it's often looked at is oh my lord you know here's just an example of racism and that just proves racism is everywhere yes, yes so yes. Oh. that's the first and most important IRR talking point like one incident doesn't prove that it's everywhere in fact the fact that it seems so exciting is probably because it is unusual yeah but the, it's the becoming multiple- more usual and and this right. is and sorry Nick this is the this is the reason that I wanted to talk about this is that I have a confession to make to our listeners and to you Nick you were right and I was wrong 
I was very wrong and I was wrong on this podcast and I was wrong on the Daily Friend podcast and, and I'm very sorry. I said that the EFF's vote is likely to drop in half by 2024 and that it should drop significantly in 2021 at the municipal elections. And I said this for good reason. I, I was at the EFF biggest rally. Yeah, you saw that people weren't all on board the, the, the race stuff. The in 2019 the election in Soweto. That was anecdotal. I've hung out with EFF guys. Mm. I've got close EFF friends. I um, I looked at the data. So stories and data. The data coming from the Institute of Race Relations Survey showed that the EFF aren't really on board with expropriation without compensation. They aren't really on board with as as a priority. They're definitely not on the board with nationalizing land because you say you know your land's going to be included. You want your house to be nationalized. They're like, <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly enthusiasm dries up. Ninety-eight percent said no. We won't. You, <laughs> I don't. Know, I want my house. Um, so it looked to me like the VBS scandal, corruption scandals against the EFF, were just taking a while to percolate through their membership base, for them to realize that these guys aren't just an alternative to the ANC that is not corrupt but are actually a more corrupt and more counterproductive version right. of the ANC. I thought that was percolating through. And, you know, I'm, I still think that was true um, to an extent. COVID might be part of what changed things, add 2 million people to the unemployment queue, add desperation, add anger, add the status quo, add the government that's in charge, add also just like, a million news cycles that are going away from the material facts towards, you know, all kinds of distractions to do with the virus and not to do with South African politics. Maybe that's what changed it. Maybe I was just wrong. Maybe I was just looking at uh, things the wrong way. But Ipsos just came out with uh, with polling data and comparing like for like, the EFF has grown in popularity. Yes, no, it seems that way. Now, it hasn't grown a lot. It's grown by like a percent or two. But so it's it, something I just the thing I just want to flag a little bit. With, I was with, wrong, and that's important to look at because the EFF has been dominating news cycles. Gareth van Onselen, just just to finish this, and then you please come in, Nick. Mm. Gareth van Onselen wrote a piece about the EFF in the middle of lockdown, saying, "Look, these guys are has been news, and the media needs to stop writing about them, and they haven't. And just remember this moment because they've had nothing to contribute in like May or or, or whatever it was." Uh, when the country's going through its darkest hour, because they're kind of just for the lockdown and, uh, you know, they've been calling the police on people that are drinking. And like, other than that, they've got nothing to contribute. And he was right. predicting that this would be the, the, you know, this spelt the end of the EFF. And this week, and I said that was rubbish. And I said it on this podcast and I said it on the Daily Friend. Um, I said the EFF is just towing an authoritarian line. They're saying, here the government is coming out with the boots on the ground to tell people what to do. And that's what the EFF really wants. Uh, they just, the only problem that they have is that they're not the guys fully in charge. Anyway, Gareth Fallon, I think he wrote some rubbish things, but I think that this week he wrote in the Business Day a piece called The Evolution of the EFF, which says they, their threats of violence are finally starting to play out. The commander in chief called for an attack on places that sell medicine and they got it. They got petrol bombs on clicks. He's called for attacks on, or he's called for disruptions at Senecal and he got it. They owned the space in Senecal. They pushed out of their designated zone and got into the, you know, other designated zone 
and broke the only destruction of property that happened at that day was them and no charges they're fine uh the EFF called for disruption at Brackenfell. It was ruled to be illegal, but they still managed basically to pull it off. I mean, there was huge tear gas and whatever. The, the police got involved and stopped it, but they are gaining momentum in terms of being able to pull off uh, what what fascists, you know, race nationalist socialist right, parties, right. which is yeah. just what fascism is. What race nationalist socialist parties tr traditionally need is to have hard men who will obey orders. And they've used this language of the commander-in-chief. They've used this language of contemplating slaughtering all whites. They've used this language of invading land. It's been happening, and it's and it's happening a little bit more. And this is a thing to take very seriously. So the EFF, Gareth von Onsen and I were in agreement about the thought that they were on the back foot. I thought that, uh, anyway, and now we're in agreement. We, there are subtle differences, which I think I've canvassed. But I think that they have had a very, very strong week. And and uh, and and in that regard, I made the bigger error. I think he was wrong about what the media should do, but I was definitely wrong in terms of where their popularity is. And I take my hat off to the pollsters for giving us good data. And it's uh, it's very important to admit when you're wrong, and I was wrong. And it's very important to look at this hard reality in the face. EFF right. is strong stronger than ever before. So Ipsos uh, has done a poll, and the poll shows a number of things. But the first thing to note about this poll is that it's not of registered voters. It's not of, um, you know, uh, some, some voters. Yeah, yeah, some form voters. It's not. Of, it's not of some group that has been isolated and waited for how they're going to vote and all that kind of thing. It's just a raw poll of the population in general. So these exact percentages of likely to be significantly different um and by significantly i mean like at least by sort of maybe three four five six points uh from any vote total but this shows the anc on about 50 percent support uh in september of 2020 the da on 16 the eff on 13 and uh you know the bits and bobs other small parties which uh, when you get to the smaller parties polling tends to get really inaccurate because it's difficult yeah. to find the voters so let's yeah. leave those smaller guys but tell us where those same parties were in the previous edition of the same episode. right so let's look at november 2019 anc at 55 percent da at 13 so the da's gone up EFF and the at anc's eight. gone down yeah 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 so basically so five percent has, has gone from five the, yeah and the anc is lost by five yeah now, when you actually look at what this probably means on election day, it probably means the DA getting maybe, um, I've seen a range of estimates, but one of the estimates is that the DA will get slightly better than it got in the 2019 election. Um, but the EFF will do better than it did in 2019. Stronger and, than ever. And the ANC is weaker than ever. And it's and it's hugely important. This is hugely, you cannot, you know, I think that uh, if there's a lesson to be drawn from history, it's that these kinds of subtle shifts, the wars are one uh, one battle at a time. You know, history is just a series of events. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> if you are excited for the EFF, this is the best news. You are cracking open the Zamalek this week. Sorry. It's, right. it's poor whites like me that drink Zamalek. If you are a fan of the EFF, <laughs> you are cracking open the Muete Chandon this weekend. And... <laughs> It's sumptuous. It's delicious. Yeah, because it's increasingly looking like the ANC might, uh, when it comes time to the next national election, will need an EFF coalition partner 
and that could well mean because the ANC right. on fifty percent popularity, half its supporters don't show up to vote. And if yeah, that's how it was in twenty nineteen. And a Ramaphosa when Ramaphosa was at his most popular. Right, and that's you know the and the DA tends to do its its voters tend to be more motivated. Although we've seen some signs that that might not be the case at the moment. Um, but if it can remotivate its voters, it might be able to grow a bit. So you've got the DA sort of consolidating support on one side, and you've got the EFF growing, and then the ANC will look around. And then there's going to be an interesting choice. There's some I've seen some discussion about this actually, and there's some who say that the that there are some in the ANC who are afraid that the EFF will basically do a reverse takeover kind of thing if they go into coalition with it. And that's why it would be better to go into coalition with uh, the DA to maintain their majority. I'm skeptical of that just because the sort of ideological differences are so, you know, vast between the DA and, and the ANC. Whereas with the EFF, in a lot of ways, the EFF really just represents what a lot of the ANC kind of wants to say, but is sort of too... Yeah. So yeah, so, so another way of looking at it... Yeah, exactly. If you but it, but another way of looking at it is if you look at the ANC's uh, national uh, conference general. I, I can't remember the name of the document. National but it's like general the biggest, council. The national general council document of 2010, which is just released two days after. Nick is pretending like it is a small news week. It is a huge news week. The ANC had its hugest investor conference of 2020. They have one huge <laughs> one every year. Look, I'm not saying it didn't yeah. fall like a lead balloon through uh, the business that's community. Why was, that's why it was dull. I asked my sister, who works for uh, one of the biggest investment banks uh, as a contractor, um, as a consultant, like, what do you think about the investment conference? And she was like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm, and then, I'm the voice. And then I asked people, her, like, do you know about think- the other ones? She's like... Usually on our work WhatsApp group, she's like on several WhatsApp groups with like five different banks and they go wild over these things. She's like, this time, literally, she didn't even know about it. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Make of that what you will. But as soon as that investment conference was over yeah, and that investment conference that. was like, oh, we're all about policy security and business friendly and we love white monopoly capital. As soon as it was over, they're like, oh, we hate white monopoly capital. They released this 100 page document, which is one of the most beautifully written things that I have come across coming out of a socialist organization you know in a, since the last one in 2015 which I read and by the way is exactly the same the biggest enemy that they identify is called the lumpen now if you haven't brushed up on your socialist history recently <laughs> lumpen is a german word it comes from lumpa which is a great german word it means ragged or lumpy or dangling a thing which is you sort of you know like a uh, I don't want to use an inappropriate metaphor here. So I will so, say so. <laughs> like a sack of potatoes, which is broken and slightly rotten. And so in, in context, Engels and Marx, a bit useless, right? Well, yeah. Engels and Marx gave it a very particular meaning. Hmm. The, the proletariat is the sort of the working class. These are the people for whom the socialist revolution is happening. It's their cause. And so we are the party of the proletariat. This is the Bolsheviks. This is the socialists. This is the EFF, the ANC, and so on. But they all notice that there are some workers, some working class guys who are not going to play cricket. Now, one word for them in early Soviet days was kulak. These were (laughs) kind of working class people who wanted to make their own money, defend their own property, uh, get ahead by by their bootstraps and all that. Yeah. Guys ultimately like property rights. Freehold peasants and 
uh, wealthier peasants is how they would normally kind of described. But kulak is a Russian word and Marx was not a Russian. He was a German and he was writing beforehand. So he talked about lumpen. So the lumpen is like the kulak. The lumpen proletariat were the proletariat who didn't understand about the long vision of communism. So they, they wanted short consciousness. So they would steal. So one common enterprise of the lumpen proletariat is to steal. Mm. So they, so Marxism and Marx said so, you know, property is theft. The idea of owning something is itself an act of theft. Those who right. own have just stolen from those who don't have. So they legitimize theft. Communism is a legitimization of theft. But at the same time, they thought that we have to steal altogether. Everyone has to band together to steal from those who have. If you steal one at a time, then it's not the proper function of a proletariat. So if you're stealing one for one, you're a lumpen proletariat. And the ANC's document goes for 20 pages. The first 20 pages basically are going on about the lumpen. And they find the lumpen everywhere. They say there are <laughs> lumpens who are stealing in our own government. In our own party, there are lumpens. Not they committed say, to the revolution. Stealing now for now. But you must think to steal together for everyone forever. It's the wrong mentality that our lumpens are having. This is the ANC documents policy. And the worst lumpens are the compromando lumpens, which is an old, old 500-year-old term coming from Portuguese. When the Portuguese were in Macau and other parts of Far East Asia, Macau's there. It's a gambling capital next to Beijing. Hong Kong, Pil, uh, next to Hong Kong. River, next to Hong Kong in the Pearl River Delta. Mm. Sort of like Hong Kong inside China, outside China. Because it's outside China, you can do gambling. So it's like, a, it's like the Las Vegas of that part of the world. Anyway. Right. Even long ago, it, it had problems, social dysfunction problems. And the problems were white people called Portuguese people were selling things to yellow people called uh, Han Chinese. But sometimes it was difficult to sell. So the white man would hire a yellow man to sell to the other yellow men. That way, they think they're buying from their own. This was a travesty of justice, according to the socialist ideal. And those uh, yellow people who were betraying uh, their race by working for white people, they were called compromando uh, uh, lumpens. And whoo, the ANC's document is very, very angry about the compromando <laughs> lumpen bourgeoisie. Basically, black dudes uh, who are puppets of white monopoly capital. There are pages and pages. The best metaphor is they say, you, the, in the way that a wasp will bury its eggs inside of a spider, so that this, so that those eggs grow up and the small little wasps eat the spider from the inside to the outside. In the same way, the lumpen compromando bourgeoisie are going to eat our revolution from the inside to the outside. If we do not stop them today, we must stop these black capitalists, these black middle class people who are looking to the DA for solutions. How it dare, is, how dare it they is make like a wasp. It is the way that a wasp eats a spider from the inside. It's How amazingly make, beautiful uh, language. Make value and <laughs> contribute to society and believe in the rule of law. How dare they? Dude, but what Outrageous. A, yeah, dude. When you hear that metaphor of a wasp's eggs, I also kind of, I feel it. I read it and I feel it. And the other thing they say, which is my favorite, is they say water, sorry, hope is a water that we must keep pouring onto this country because the tinder of dissatisfaction will otherwise set ablaze. And it's such a beautiful endorsement of talking bullshit. 
in 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 the sense that we defined in our right. last podcast. It just <laughs> it doesn't matter what the truth is. You must spread hope because it is a water to put the fire down. <laughs> Dude, this ANC document, it's its the only official party party doc, document that is not authored by a person. It's authored by the ANC that comes up. It's amazing. I really encourage it, that you read it. But it identifies the EFF. I mean, it doesn't name any other political party. But it identifies the lumpens in some of the, of the, of the opposition parties who are not adept at tactical thinking. They are young and they are appealing to the black masses on the basis of of short-winded violence. That is, it, they are restricted by a short-term view. They do not understand that the National Democratic Revolution, which the document is calling for, it must happen right. through a policy of uh, very strategic operations. So they identify in that document, they identify that EFF, it, it seems very much like it's written by Ramaphoriak, who's against the Ace Makhashule clan and against the EFF clan. And, uh, and, and thinks that the EFF are a bunch of lumpens and Ace is a, is a lumpen and the lumpens are the, the only thing worse than a lumpen ultimately is a uh, is someone with white privilege who's not letting it go, which is another group that they identify. <laughs> yes, but this is this is the ANC's the ANC's correctly reading the Ipsos data, in my opinion, because the Ipsos data identifies that thirty percent of ANC uh, people who say they would vote for the ANC or like the ANC, if they would go for, to go for a second party, it'd be the EFF. Right, and it's a it's a bigger number for the EFF than it is for the DA. So yeah. the the ANC's got a very big worry on its left flank. And the EFF is doing very well. And I mentioned earlier about myself being more of a black label drinker and uh, and and rich whites in the EFF uh, being more into champagne. And uh, and I have a particular person in mind. Yeah, we, we had a yeah, yeah we had a watch good that video. Yeah, uh, look, I I've I've seen this guy popping about now for the past couple of days, and uh, he. He's just kind of, if I was to talk about a white supporter of the EFF, this is a guy who appeared at the Brackenfell protests, I would probably describe someone like him with his background. Because it's just, it's exactly what one would expect. It's so obvious. It's so perfect. It's like, it's like <laughs> life just giving you a, the most clear-cut example of itself. So what, it's what, what it's like Donald Trump. Again? It's like a caricature of itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What did he say in the video again about whites giving up he, all their... He said, he said his father or his grandfather or someone was a member of the DA and that the DA is a white supremacist organization. And he's there in, in his EFF uh, jersey. Sure. He says, yeah, yeah. the EFF must... We, we're not doing enough at Brackenfold to disrupt the sort of the goings-on of, you know, economic enterprise and, and people trying to write their matric finals and so on. He says the 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 biggest issue is that we need to return the land in Clifton to black people. Mm -hmm. And part of what's amazing about that is 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 firstly that the reason land in Clifton is so valuable is is because land in Clifton is so valuable. In other right. words, it's, it's on the sea and it has really big houses and big properties. No, it's not on the sea. 
there, there's so much land in South Africa that's on the sea. I've been to many holiday homes that are worth a million rand that are right on the sea and the coast is just as beautiful as Clifton Coast. The reason Clifton is so beautiful is because that's where you get to hang is at a, an esteem level. That's where you get to buy a house and you get to brag. I don't just have a holiday house uh, in the middle of the Eastern Cape or you know, outside of Port St. John's or whatever. I've got a holiday house in Clifton. You can brag about that in, in Germany and the UK and in America. Whereas if you've got a house in like Plettenberg Bay, it's really nice, but it's, you know, you can brag in South Africa, but you can't brag there. And if you've got a little house sort of 100 kilometers north of Umschlange on the beach, it can be very nice, but it's, you know, no one knows. And there are a lot of foreigners who do actually own houses around there. That, um, and so from a, from a yeah. property valuation perspective, because it's so fashionable, because it's so already bought into by wealthy elites from around the world, if you want to sell your place, you've got a you've got a global market that you can tap into. So that's why it's valuable. So if you raise all the property rights, it's not going to be valuable. I, I mean, it'll still be nice, but it's going to houses that are worth fifty million rand today are going to be worth five million rand tomorrow. So that's one of the curious curiosities. The other curiosity, the bigger one perhaps, is that one of these guys' relations, I can't tell if it's his father or his uncle or his grandfather, owns like a hundred rand a hundred million rands worth of hotels on Clifton. So right. maybe he just feels like Irritated that he's been left out of the the will. <laughs> I uh, believe it's all about generational wealth. Isn't isn't this chap also a descendant of the National Party mayor of Cape Town? I think that's correct, and that's why he's talking about you know he's he's, he's isn't he conflating the the DA and the NP here together because he's saying that DA is just the continuation of the NP, and that that's why. That's why uh, he's against. Right. So, so, but here's, so here's what I think is intellectually. So I've seen like on our circles, like a lot of people sort of sharing this around and getting very angry about it. I don't think you should get too angry about it. This guy, he's like a university student. He's not very important. I mean, he, he does seem like a brat, but whatever, you know. He seems um, like, uh, I don't know, I'd call it maybe like a tourist revolutionary or something. Yeah, he's, it's so overdetermined. It's so, as you say, it's so obvious. Mm. Uh, there's like a rich trans fund kid who's either been left out of the fund or feels like he's in it but feels guilty about it and has to make himself cool to his friends. Whatever his personal nexus of motivations are, he's not an important political player. Uh, and the fact that there's yet another rich white kid supporting the EFF is it's just no surprise to anyone who's actually been close to the EFF like me. Like when I say I've got friends in the EFF, like – I'd say a minority of them are white. I'm sorry, a minority of them are black. Uh, most of my friends that have been big BF, big EFF friends have been white <laughs> and, and and super rich. Uh, none of none of my poor white friends have been into the EFF, but whatever. Okay, so I think what's interesting about this is it gives us an opportunity to talk about um, a kind of philosophical question, which is how to think about racial cross-dressing. That's a $5 phrase. But it's kind of what he's doing, right? Because he's kind of, at a certain level, it looks like he's saying, you know, I'm for the black cause. Black people were oppressed right. by apartheid. And so I want to take away from white people and give to black people. And I'm a white person. And that's what I want to do. Or is it, I am actually a black guy. And so there are these two, these two contrasting ideas that <clears> sort of 
both seem to fit with this dude. The one of them, which I've which we've discussed, is George Orwell's concept from 1944-1945 of transferred race nationalism. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, if you're a social constructivist about race, you think race is, you know, whatever biological differences there are that make people's eye colors and skin colors and hair textures different. What race is really is an idea. And I think this made a lot of sense to all at the time. When racism was at its most intense, this idea, you know, people like to poo-poo this idea. They're like, oh, how can you say race is just a social construct? Like, I can just see by looking at someone what race they are. Surely that's because of their genes. Yeah, well, hold your horses. The biggest race war in the history of humankind was between, amongst other things, like Anglo-Saxons and Aryans and Slavs and Gauls and <laughs> and, uh, and La Raza, which was Mussolini's term. And it was... And you can't easily just tell every time whether someone's a Slav or an Italian Larazza or a German Ubermensch or a Slavic uh, Gaspardin or right. an Anglo-Saxon gent. You actually, yeah. it's very hard to tell an Anglo-Saxon and a Gaul and an Aryan and a Although Slav. Although that didn't stop that didn't stop them trying to claim that you could back uh, at the time. Dude, look at Hitler. Tell me what race he is. <laughs> no sure but there was an awful lot of uh especially from the nazis you know oh well you know this man has the, the aryan skull shape <laughs> which yeah did they desperately but that was desperately yeah that was kind of after the fact stuff right it was like really uh, oh, we, 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 we need to think... find a way to justify what we already believe so here's what we're going to come yeah. up with if you think social constructivism theory about race the thought that it's just like a it's a meme if you think that's nonsense, look at Hitler and tell me what race he is. Uh, so, okay. So George Orwell was living in that world and he shot fascists through the eyeballs and he was shot through his neck by fascists. He did the walk of opposing fascism. Um, but by the time, during the Spanish Civil War, by the time World War II came along, he was a bit older and a bit weaker and he was a journalist writing at home trying to encourage Brits not to demonize Germans, but rather to demonize fascism uh, and, right. and kill fascists, um, amongst other things. And then he went back into Europe with, after the Normandy invasion, he sort of followed the troops as they, on the, on the Western Front as they, as they went towards Britain. Yeah, anyway, Europe. and he came out of that and he said, you know, I, he kind of thought that, that race, he kind of got to the point where he was thinking of race as just an idea, as just a meme. Uh, and you can kind of, fill, you can, you can, you know, like honorary whites during apartheid. Like you can, you can do all kinds of silly buggers uh, with who you classify as what. And he said that the thing to watch out for is people who look one race, but they are in the team of the other race. Right. Uh, and so that's transferred race nationalism. So you can look white, but you are actually black. And there's no further fact. It's like the truth is you are actually black. And I know what that feels like because. Lots of people, especially when I was younger, dude, it was not unusual for me to be told, dude, Gabe looks white or Gubbs looks white, but he is actually one of us. He's actually black. What a legend. That was like a quite normal thing for me to hear at high school and for parts of my university career. And I never really affirmed it. I never really denied it. I kind of thought it was cute. I didn't know what to make of it. In some sense, I thought it was like um, tongue in cheek. Uh, as if to say that part of what Gabriel helps us to see is that 
this thing is all a bit of a joke because it would usually be punctuated by a laugh. And sometimes I thought that there was a political idea going on, but I was always pretty clear about the fact that I was non-racialist politically. I mean, I was always 100% clear about that, actually. Um, I always ask questions about BE. I always, and criticize, not just ask questions. I always criticized it and said, at the very least, we've got to have a sunset clause. Uh, and at best, you know, we should probably just go merit now. Um, but anyway, that's getting to the scraps of my biography. The point is that that's one way of looking at this kind of guy, this guy who is white and comes from a rich family and a very high status family and supporting the EFF is saying, take away from whites and give it to blacks, that he is in the realist sense, just he's a black dude. And I, I would be, I would bet you three cases of beer. Nick and I currently have one case of beer outstanding on a bet about the American election. I'd bet you three cases of beer that he has been in several conversations where dudes have been like, wow, this guy looks white, but he really is black. He's really one of us. And that he would consider that to be of the highest compliments he could possibly receive. So that's the one theory is that that makes it true. The other theory is the white burden supremacist theory, which is that no race is a biological concept. You can never change your race, but what you can do is change the way that your race becomes great. And in the early 19th century, uh, the Brits are the greatest white race, the Anglo-Saxons, and they prove their greatness by being the first and great and fastest industrializers, by expanding their empire so that the sun never sets upon it, and yeah, by civilizing the world. the world in their own image. And then by the late, and they've sort of abolished slavery and cost them blood and treasure, and they do things which I even think are really good, um, including expanding global trade and abolishing slavery. And then... Uh, to be a great white person changes and it becomes like this, this maternalistic thing. Like you've got to be the most humble. You've got to give away your stuff. You've got to be like a parent who just, uh, tirelessly accepts that who sacrifices you, of themselves for their children. Yeah. And that white burden supremacy, I think sort of really fits neatly for me with a lot of what I see coming out of wokeism and that I've seen for the last seven years. Uh, both here and in America, and and in a word, it's it's the sort of ally view. You know, you must tape your mouth shut and be a human shield for the black protesters, or you must you know go in front of a camera and say, "I as a white person am very guilty. I'm part of this generational in, wealth in problem. Parlance, I'm trying to resolve it." Yeah, in the parlance of social justice speak, you need need to be practice good allyship. So there's this metaphysical question about whether this guy is a white burden supremacist who thinks who's really trying to make the case that white people are the best book and he's he's the best that white people can be because white people are just selfless or and 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 that seems to fit because he seems to like he's not against generational wealth he's just he just <laughs> is against it for white people he's like black people must have generational wealth so he clearly thinks black people can't get ahead on their own steam. They've got to inherit or be given. So in that sense, he clearly thinks that white people are superior. And so he seems to be, in that regard, a white burden supremacist. But in the other regard, he seems to be a transferred race nationalist because the language that he uses of denouncing whiteness and white people doesn't apply to himself. He doesn't actually say, and I'm also a white guy and I'm also guilty of this stuff. Um he seems to be, you know, like my foremost identity is an EFF freedom fighter. You know, maybe we need to slaughter all white people. That's not going to apply to me because I'm not white. 
<laughs> it's you guys. You guys, it's coming. It's coming for you. So I don't know. I don't know which it is. And I think it's an interesting thing to remember this diff, the, these two different ways of seeing the world, partly because they bring out in each other some of the mad contradictions, but also partly to just be sympathetic. I don't think he knows whether he's a white burden supremacist or a transferred race nationalist, right? He's so young. Yeah. His ideas are so nebulous that he hasn't figured it out for himself. And I think that is the status of most of the middle-aged and older white people I know that uh, bat for the ANC and bat for the EFF. And I know academics at WITS and UCT and UKZN, personally, people I've written about, people have uh, read a lot of. And I think they, like, the and, and unionists, I know hardcore trade unionists that have been doing it all their lives in their 60s now and, and drive multiple fancy sports cars and go skiing in the Swiss Alps uh like real proletarians and are very excited about the eff's great week i've been seeing them bragging about it on facebook but i <laughs> but it's just something interesting about them that i don't think they figured out about themselves whether they they whether they i mean sometimes they think that they're the best people because as as like because they are the most humble white people and, and humility is the greatest virtue of whiteness. And sometimes they hate whiteness and they, and they completely disassociate themselves from it and think that, um, that they're really black and are, and are told that by the people around them and, and really value that as the highest compliment they can receive. And I think, that's a, I think it's a hard and interesting place to live. And, um, and, and I think we can afford to be sympathetic with with people like that. We must be sympathetic with with everyone, whether they're doing great or or, or, or ill, uh, to try and understand what's going on. And I think that it's less consequential today than it's ever been in South Africa. I think South Africa is finally getting to the you know I think it's finally gotten to the point actually since about 2017, where where the white where with the, to the extent that white people do occupy the elite, it's that extent has reduced to the point where it doesn't tip the balance of forces. The guys that really matter are within the EFF are not white. The guys that really matter within the ANC are not white. The guys that really matter within the DA are, some of them are white, some of them are not white. It's very clear that if they're going to grow, it's going to be by selling non-racialism to a section of the population that's not white, that hasn't uh, that hasn't really had that on offer in a real way before. So I think the destiny of this country, you know, I think, in other words, I think that like these kinds of intellectual games that I've just been playing and that I think are important to play are much more academic and much less consequential than they were even 10 years ago. 10 years ago, a white guy saying, Julius, a rich white kid saying Julius Malema is the business, uh, I think would have been really important. Uh, if you look at the distribution of wealth, how it's changed in the last 10 years. If you look at the distribution of esteem, how it's changed in the last 10 years. If you look at the extent to which our political narrative, our sort of legacy media norms have changed. I, I just think that it it matters so much less. It's super interesting and it's a human life. And so it's definitely worth talking about. 
Um, but yeah. Yeah, so the psychology of the elite society, I do, I, it does also look to me like part of what's one of the things that's going on here is yet, yet another person who went to university and got turned into a weird cultist by university. And I've seen this happen to people in my own life, and I find it uh, a bit sort of depressing. Um, and uh, it makes it puts me in a bad mood. Uh, <laughs> And it reinforces one of my hot takes, which is that the voting age should be 25. But that's a discussion for another day. Um. <laughs> well, I'd be done with that because I never voted before 25. You were the guy who was voting the day after your birthday. Yeah, I <laughs> I think back to myself at 18 and I go, what an idiot. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have voted any different nowadays. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't a complete moron. Um, and in fact, I suspect in five years, I'll think of myself as an idiot now. Um, so it's probably, I look, I hate, I hate, I hate youth politics in general. Um, I must say, uh, I think that it's like of all the forms of identity politics, uh, it's kind of lazy and you know, what do you, what, what requirements do you need to have for being uh, a youth? Well, you, you literally just need to be born and then you're a member of the youth. <laughs> yeah, but it's the same. That's that's certainly true for gender politics, race, race politics. The entry levels right. for any but involuntary like, social identity. But like it's 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 like you know, like a percentage of the population is black, a percentage of the population is white, a percentage of the population is female. A hundred percent of the population is young at some point. Um. So it, so it this speaks to okay. But so this is the point that I was trying to draw. So youth is what philosophers call a face sortal. So it's the kind of thing you don't understand unless you understand that the same person, the same identity, the same unit can uh, have that as a property. You are young and then lose that property and continue to be the same thing, the same person. So you can be one person who goes from being young to being old. You don't understand what youth is unless you understand that. Right. Is the same thing true of race? Some people say there's a version of social constructivism that says you've got to understand that you can go from being one race to another race and still be the same person. And that's more on the sort of transferred race nationalist side. And oh. then there's the other idea, which is that, no, if you were to change your race, you would have to become a different person. And one of those views is like a, a, a biological view, which which says that you'd have to to literally change your DNA. And then the third view is a is like a W.E.B. Du Boisian view. He's the, you know, probably the most important figure in American race politics in the last hundred years. Who who's who say that your 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 soul has a color. Right. That if you're black, you have a black soul. Um and so if you were to change it, it would be it'd literally be like changing your soul. You'd become an entirely metaphysically different person. And I think that that's a – dude, I partly think that that's – the tension between those two ideas is something that we should draw out to help people understand um, how silly the enterprise is in the first place of trying to get codes of conduct and judgments according to race. In other words, you can bring out the contrast. Like there's white burden supremacists who really are trying to be the best white person they can be by being very humble and taping their mouths shut and standing up for black people and saying, take all my stuff, just not yet, but take all the other white people's stuff and then maybe you can take mine. Then there's transferred white race nationalists, transferred 
uh, black race nationalists who start out as white, but they say like, no, I'm really black. Yeah, I talk like I'm from the Kasi, like I wear this kind of shoe, like I do these kinds of things. And you can trust me, I'm black. I just look white. And my favorite example of that is is uh, Patrick Bonner, head of the Fitz, uh, um International Affairs Department, who said the worst thing you can say, he doesn't say black people are corrupt. He says some black people are, are actually white people stuck inside of black skins. Because white, <laughs> if you're stealing, you're white. If you're good, you're black. So in his skin, he's black, oh, man. but he just looks white. Stephen Krutus said the same thing. Stephen Krutus, SAFM, Voice of the Nation, uh, you know, world, nation famous. He said uh, when he was under pressure, dude, I've been trying to rub this white paste off my skin so that people can see underneath I am black. So there are those guys. They're the transferred race nationalists. There's the white burden supremacists. And they seem very similar, but they've actually got very different ideas. And we should draw out that difference so that you can see the much bigger difference between them and non-racialists. People are like, there is, you, you, you completely started on the wrong foot. So much better to, <laughs> to commit to other teams like your family, like your country, like your religion. Like your business partners, like your customers, like your neighborhood, like your sports team, like right. your like your hobby group, your quiz night buddies, your your right, your like, like wolf pack, literally, dude with a yeah. wolf pack, or your book club, or your you know. There's just so many almost, better ways to to get a sense of anything else. Yeah, race is the thinnest. You say you say that youth is the kind of the thinnest social identity because. Because you'd only have to be born, but I say that it's a bit thicker because it's at least got built in this idea that you transition out of it necessarily unless you die uh, while you're still young. Whereas What's race the... is so thin that the racialist steam teams are compatible both with the transitional idea that you can transition, that you can transcend from one race to another race, and with the anti, which is like a phase sort of like teenagerdom or youth or whatever. And with the opposite of idea, the opposite idea, the sole idea that you you start with one and that's the one that you stick. It's so thin that it's compatible with even both of those. So it's an even more uh, ephemeral, you know, not ephemeral, even more whimsy, uh, sort of weightless hook to try and hang a life on. And I think that yeah, if there is something useful that this kid does, it sort of demonstrate the confusion. Um, that's at the core. And part of the reason that this matters is like, I know some people will be tempted to look at that and say, this guy's a race traitor. You know, he should be sticking up for whites and instead he's sticking up for blacks and, 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 and that's wrong. And that idea is wrong. It's a false yeah. dichotomy. That's, that's putting you in the same thing of like, you've got to bat for one team or the other team. But look, as soon as you notice that when a white guy's batting for the black team, he could be doing that as an adopted ally, or he could be doing that as like a fully transferred race nationalist. As soon as you notice there's already that difference, you notice that there's got to be more differences. And, and those more differences include the possibility of not batting for one racial team or another. Just just being like that is, I'm, I'm not for any of them. There's other things that I'm for. There's other group identities that matter to me. But, uh, you know, Nick was Nick was making fun of me for for humble grab, brag, bragging about being tall. 
<laughs> Imagine like the tall person's club. Like, you know, we want uh, more rights for tall people or the short people like, you know, figure out that, dude, GDP per capita for short people is less than for tall people, by the way. So uh, on the same basis as BE, <laughs> you could say, well, you know, we need preferential procurement for tall, short people and we need like short people represented in parliament to a greater degree and whatnot. You know, most people would say, I'm not for short people or for tall people. <laughs> I'm just, right. neither of those is what I'm for. And right. the same option is available for race. You don't have to be for one or the other. And anyway, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's just um, silly, but I do think there's something about seeing a guy like that try before another race that sort of exposes how socially constructed it is. Not to say that the biological thing totally goes away, but to, but just to sort of show that. Right. That if you can do that, surely to goodness you can go for non-racialism. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that's much less edgy. <laughs> it's it's much, much more edgy. Non-racialism is the most edgy. Yeah, thing. but it's Nick, it's, it's the kind of okay, okay, so okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, calm down, calm down, calm down. Here's what I'm saying is that, you know, he thinks he probably thinks he's being delightfully edgy, but at, he, but at the same time without taking any real risks, because, you know, it's so expected. It's so warm and comfortable is I'm going to be a revol I'm going to be a revolutionary, even though my family is wealthy and my you know, uh, her political heritage is uh, unfashionable these days. Dude, there's um, a huge, there's a huge like uh, harem of of people willing to catch him uh, if anyone were to diss him. Right. If you exactly. if you go out and are vocally non-racialist, like you might be speaking from the same point of view as most of the country, but in the public square, chances are no one's going to stand up for you the first time around, or if they do, it's just going to be one or two. You know, it's much more edgy to be non-racialist. Right. Um, but I would. We don't have time for this. <laughs> Let us call it to a close now and have our recommendations. Uh, mine <laughs> is... Yes. Uh, actually, I don't know if I've recommended this before, but I just feel like I should because I've watched clips from it recently again. And that's the movie Downfall, um, which is about Hitler's final days in the bunker in uh, World War II. It's a German film, has subtitles. Just awesome, awesome film. Um, and I so was reminded Nick, I've, of got a, I've got a question for you because mm. sometimes you see a great thing and then you see a parody and then once <laughs> you've seen the parody, it's hard to see the real thing because like those speeches from downfall, it's been such a meme for years to, um, put the subtitles. Uh, yeah. You change the subtitles of one of the scenes to make Hitler say funny things. Yeah. So having seen those parodies, when you watched the original again, did you did it still that scene pull you becomes, in the same way? That scene becomes very surreal in a weird way because you're sort of, you know, thinking of Hitler ranting about, like, I don't know, his internet connection or something. <laughs> but at the same time, it's this, like, it, it's just so well acted that I think it's difficult actually to kind of completely become detached from the scene, especially if you're enjoying the movie up till that point. Um, so I, I don't think those parodies do ruin it. Um, and in fact, it, it may be the watching the movie for real ruins the parodies a bit because you know what it was talking about in that scene then. 
Yeah, that's that's it for me. I I almost never enjoy those parodies because it just they it, I just the the joke is never enough to pull me away from the tragedy. <laughs> right. But I'm I'm an earnest guy. I mean, I do try and laugh, but I'm an earnest guy. My but recommendation. The, uh, you said is, it earlier, right? Is to oh to check out me on Vim TV. Yeah, I don't know. Or check out me on News Newsroom Africa. I'm in a special that's going to be broadcast three different times in the next three days. <laughs> I don't. Ooh, aren't we fancy? Very fancy. No, I feel like uh, the the recommendation I want to make is a little bit more poetic. Um, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> if you ha- if you have the option or the chance to read or watch Death of a Salesman. Um, I was just going over some notes I made about that. It's by Tennessee Williams. It's it's arguably the greatest play written in America in the 20th century. And part of what's beautiful about it is that it's about a man who, you know, very working class, very poor, and he figures out that he's got the gift of the gab. He can bullshit people. He can sort of convince people to get enthusiastic about things that they don't really care that much about. But like once they've done it, they don't regret it that much. So he so he's a good salesman. But as he gets a bit older, as his shoes start fraying, as his hairline recedes, it's just harder for him to pull it off. And it's it's a deep, deep tragedy. And I think it's the great metonym for for what's happening to the ANC right now. And I loved the ANC as a kid. And and just seeing it's you know it's like watching a it's like watching a bad rock star kind of age and and lose their teeth and their hair and they're like you know the heroine is just not agreeing with the constitution you know and it's it's actually sad um, because it's because 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 uh, there's so much sympathy f- like for if nothing else the relentless human ambition to keep trying to to hit your head against a wall and think that this time the wall is actually going to break through. And, yeah, I mean, I think the ANC is there, but and I think the EFF is kind of the front of that head. And there's a tragedy, and then at the same time, there's always this risk that maybe this time it will break through. You know, there's this great worry that the, that the wife starts to have that maybe he will finally come up with an idea that's, like, worth a million dollars. And now that he's morally broken himself down to this point is that actually going to make things worth i don't know it's a beautiful human story and and for me it had a lot of resonance to to the south african dilemma because i think we're so full of selling south africa as an idea that and it's and by the way you know i love the constitution i you know i love the idea of south africa but we're so used to selling that idea that that um that we've fallen into the death of the salesman kind of cycle a bit in a way that's just that's just uh, emotionally quite moving to engage with in Tennessee Williams' play. So that's my recommendation. Right. Uh, also, uh, buy gold. <laughs> the EFF I don't know. Marvel is a good sign maybe know. to... Uh, no, to, dude, to if you want an investment... Let's say hedge. <laughs> buy, dude, the... I mean, it hasn't actually gone through because the FCMA might stop it, but the sovereign and the reserve and the treasury are basically trying to push to allow you to invest all of your pension funds. Right? Yeah. 
all all of it no cap on foreign listed etfs exchange traded funds which basically just means you you buy indexes like the s p 500 or whatever so if that does go through do it quickly because it won't last right 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 um although that sounds dangerously fine like financial advice which uh i'm not sure if we're allowed to give but yeah it's just uh, something to keep an eye on <laughs> south africa's coolest glass of amarula not a financial <laughs> advice <laughs> All right, uh, that's all for today. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you next week for either our last or second last episode of the year. Um, we'll have to work that out. I think it's I think it's second last. Anyway, work it out. Cheers, everyone, and have a wonderful week. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, 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 grr.